Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. She called me about 10 years after we did League of Their Own. So, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe. And she said to me, Rosie, can you play soccer? <laughs> I said, what? Can you play soccer? I don't know. I never, it wasn't my sport, truthfully, too much running. I didn't like it. I'd right. rather sit. But, you know, yeah, I, I know how to play soccer. Why? She's like, well, there's a team in Mexico. Great story. You could be the lady. I go, I'm Rosie O'Donnell. I'm going to be the Mexican woman on the soccer <laughs> coach. What? But she was always trying to, like, get everybody back together and do it again. And, you know, do do you play soccer? <laughs> Hi, this is Rosie O'Donnell, and I have a cold sore. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Off the Beat. I am, as always, your humble host, Brian Baumgartner. Today's guest, well, she needs no introduction. I'm going to give one anyways, but I just want you to know I am so excited to welcome the legendary. Rosie O'Donnell to the podcast. Honestly, it, it would be much easier for me to tell you what Rosie hasn't done in the entertainment business than to list her her countless huge projects from the last, what, four decades? I mean, maybe you know Rosie from some of the, the tiny movies she's done. You know, A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, or perhaps you're more familiar with her stand-up 
career or from her years doing the iconic Rosie O'Donnell show. The Queen of Nice is also the Queen of Candid, to be clear. She's also responsible for some of the biggest philanthropic efforts in the history of show business and was, continues to be, groundbreaking for the LGBTQ plus community around the world. We'll hear a lot about that and the impact she has made in that community. Look, she's a legend for a reason. You, you might even say that she's in a league of her own. Okay, not the best, but I'm, I'm trying. Uh, this is a great conversation. There is so much insider info. And if you know anything about Rosie, you should not be surprised that she was able to be completely candid, moving, and hilarious all at once. So I'm not going to make you wait any longer. Here she is, Rosie O'Donnell. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be doing this. Well, I'm so happy that you're here. It's it's a little bit of a different environment than Watch What Happens Live the last time I saw you. I know. That was so fun. And I remember I said to Lori, I love that guy. We should hang out with him. So this is our first hang. Consider this our first hang. This will be our first of, of many, I hope. Yeah, me too. Congratulations on the new podcast. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I wanted to start back. By the way, I, I, I told you this when I met. I'm a huge fan of yours. Your uh, career is, well, I mean, it's unbelievable and inspiring. <laughs> I want to get into it a, a little bit. When did you first begin to have feelings of interest in performing when you were a kid? Pre-kindergarten. Pre-kindergarten? Yes. In kindergarten, everybody would do show and tell, and they would bring in a toy, and I would go, and now I'd like to do something from Guys and Dolls. <laughs> and I would belt out a Broadway show, song that my mother would listen to the original cast recordings all the time, so I knew every Broadway show. And I wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be Barbara Streisand. I wanted to be Bette Midler. Now, the fact that I really couldn't sing or dance didn't really, you know, dissuade me. I was still like gung ho, let's do this. And and the goal for me was never Hollywood. It was always Broadway because okay. you know, Hollywood was some imaginary illusion that I, I mean, I had been on a plane, you know, I didn't know how to get there. But Broadway, I knew how to get there and I knew how to watch sweaty people come out of that stage door that I just saw on stage. And I'm like, this is the destination, Broadway. So that's always always what I thought I would do. You know, I would have a career as a Broadway performer and then maybe producer. Did you, did, so you went to a lot of shows, even as a young, oh, yeah. a young kid. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Very, very often I would um, take off Wednesday and go on the train into Manhattan and then get a $10 TKTS uh, seat. TKTS, or, yeah. Yeah. Or the, when you did, they used to do standing room. I don't know if they still do that now with COVID, but um, they used to do standing room for, for a very discounted fee. And, and I saw all those hits in the seventies. I saw, you know, best little whorehouse. I saw Pippin. I saw 
chorus line. I saw, you know, they're playing her song and I loved it. I thought it was the most magical part of the world. And I came to find out in my career that I've been very lucky to do a lot of different things in different avenues. And, and I think the most enjoyable for me is definitely Broadway. But okay. it's a young person's game because eight shows a week when you're 61 trying to remember the lines is not <laughs> not what it was in my 20s, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, you know, I don't know if you know this. I started off in in theater as well. And I, oh, I didn't thought, know I thought that that was my life. That was all, mm-hmm. all I wanted to do as well. And so I... I was never based in New York. I did some shows there, uh, but I was sort of on that major regional theater circuit, traveling right, from city right. to city, Berkeley Rep and the Guthrie and and others. And uh, I think what you just said is so true. It is kind of a young person's game. The eight shows a week, yeah. nonstop. The only day you have off is Monday, and nobody else is off on Mondays. It's it's hard to 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 have a life, right? Well, you you only have your life and your world amongst the people who are on your schedule. So it's a small community. It's a very connected, kind community. Everyone knows each other. It's it's so much uh, more tangible than the vagueness of Hollywood success. When you're on Broadway, you know, you see the same people when you go out to eat in between shows at Joe Allen's and, you know, you you get your routine and, and it becomes your life and your world. And it is a beautiful part of show business. It's the part that kind of moves me the most when you go home after doing a a, a series, you go in your bed, you go to sleep. It's It's not the same as live performers. Uh, there with you making a show every night just for those 1600 people in the theater, you know? Yeah. You're in high school and your dream is to be on Broadway. What begins to get you into stand up? I did a comedy show where you make fun of the teachers called Senior Follies. Okay. And I would take the whole uh, Saturday Night Live record. And I would change the names like, you know, um, Miss Barron, who was a very skinny, flat chested teacher. More on this story as it develops. Right. <laughs> I would just change the and I made it all about the teachers. Well, they thought I was a genius. They're like, I'm like, don't don't put on that record because I stole everything from there, you know. Um, and so I wrote it and I did Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. And uh, you ever notice you got a little piece of saliva in your mouth that goes up and down and up and and um, I had a wig on and and this man comes over to me who's about 30 and I'm now 16. Right. And okay. he says, um, my brother is in this play. Yeah, I'm his older brother. I just opened a comedy club out on uh, Huntington, Long Island, uh, you know, uh, next two towns over. What, why don't you come and do some stand up? And I was like, I don't want to do stand up. I want to be on Broadway. Right. And he was like, well, maybe before you get to Broadway, you could do a little stand up. And I was like, well, I'll try. So I go to this club and it's a Saturday night and it's every com- kid I knew in high school that would, and I was popular in high school. The whole place was packed and I didn't really have an act per se, but I would make fun of the people in the audience. Like, okay. oh, Mindy, you know, do you know that your boyfriend, Billy, made out with Lisa Shackner last week? Like, it would just be like kibitzing, you know? Right. Well, I killed because they thought it was hysterical that I was on at a comedy club and well, Richie said, why don't you come back tomorrow night? And I was like, all right, I'll try it again. Look how good I was. The next night was a school night and nobody could come. So it was just a regular crowd. 
when I say that I died a death on that stage, <laughs> it was torturous to watch. <laughs> so I get off and, and Richie goes, well, you know, you're going to bomb a little bit, kid. You're going to bomb a little bit. And I'm like, OK, all right. I go back and he says I can start working the open mic night as the as the MC and, you know, not get paid, really. But I did that and I learned a lot. I learned how to do it. And then Shirley Hemphill from What's Happening, she was the headliner and she saw me at the open mic night and she told Richie Minervini, oh, that kid's going to open for me this weekend. And he said, she's not ready. I'm not paying her. She's novid. She said, well, I won't perform if you don't book her and pay her 50 bucks a show. So it was like I made $300 on the weekend. I could not believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And that's how it began. You know, a few a few years later, when I was 22, a woman at that same comedy club came over to me and she's in her 40s. And she says, my dad is Ed McMahon and I'm the talent coordinator for Star Search. And we'd like you to come on Star Search. I thought, you're not Ed Claudia McMahon. You're not his daughter what's what would you be doing here right sure enough it was claudia mcmahon and it was ed's daughter and she got me on that show where i won five or six weeks in a row and made like twenty seven hundred dollars each time i won i was rolling in it right and um <laughs> i ended up not winning the year but the final hundred thousand dollar prize but i got to a point where now i was known enough to be a headliner so by 22, after that show was on, I was headlining all over the country in small venues like little clubs, you know, but right. still it was it was a living for sure. I could make a living. And that's how it began. So when you say I'm going to I want to go back just a teeny bit, but you were emceeing these comedy nights. Yes. So you, what what were you what were you learning as you watched these comics? Well, you know. It was mostly open mic night and you don't really learn a lot from open mic night because, you know, nobody there is the professional. But Richie was so kind to me. He used to let me come and hang out on the weekends okay. in an empty seat. So I rarely got to see female comics, which was a bummer because there were so few of us back then. There were like, you know, 10 women and we were working the circuit and we never got booked together because they didn't think two women could do a show together. You know, it was so rare to have a woman comic that. They didn't ever let us work together, which was kind of sad. <laughs> but um, what I learned from watching comics is, first of all, that you have to use your own material. I used Jerry Seinfeld's material when I was 17. Right. And uh, not only did I take his material, I took his cadence. So I literally went on stage and said, you know, my car got stuck on the way here. What am I looking for? A big on off switch on off? I'm thinking, hey, dogs don't have pockets. You know, I did it and I walked off stage and I got a very good response. Right. And these male comics come over to me in their 30s and I'm like a teenager. And uh, they said, where'd you get that? I said, Jerry Seinfeld. He was on uh, Merv Griffin yesterday. He's a comedian. They say, well, you cannot use his jokes. I go, why? They go, well, he has, you have to write your own jokes. I go, hold it. Barbara Streisand does not write music. All she does is sing. I'm just going to be funny. I I'm not going to write my own jokes. I'm not a writer. And they're like, well, that's how you have to do it. And here's our advice. Talk about your family, something nobody else talks about. Talk about your own experience and your own family. So that's what I learned, how to take my life, exaggerate it, twist it, and present it as a finished product. Like I, I learned 
that there's a couple kinds of comedy, conversational and presentational. And the difference is, is pretty big. And um, which kind did you want to be? Where did you naturally fall in your comedic timing and your comedic vision, you know? And um, it was very, very helpful. He, he, whenever I read like Max, Mac, Malcolm Gladwell, whatever his name is, and he says you have to do like 100,000 hours of something to get. Right. I put in my time at those comedy clubs, <laughs> right. years and years and years, you know. Which type do you think you're more, conversational or presentational? I definitely think when I started, I was presentational, Okay, right? I would work a, a bit, work a bit, work a bit, get it till it was a finished product, then wrapped up in a nice little bow. I put it in the basket and then I go on the net. But that, as I've gotten older and with this job now of podcasting, I think I prefer a more conversational approach. You know, okay. even when I'm watching young comedians, I think I love when they're having conversations rather than, you know, but I'm bumch, but I'm bumch, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because. You know, we're all both in this business. And by the way, even people who are not in this business, you're everyone's playing a, a character, right? Yes, to a certain sure. degree. You're playing a character with your family or with your friends or with this set of friends is different than that other set of friends. And but for you, did you feel like you were creating a character, which was Rosie the stand up or what what percentage of of yourself did you bring into it? Um, well, you know, I didn't bring anything about being gay because it was at a time when no one really talked about it and or asked you about it. Like no one ever said to me as I was, you know, growing up in the industry. Oh, by the way, are you gay? Like right. it, it wasn't a it wasn't a conversation. And and I remember once when I was touring with Greece before we came into Broadway. Um, and Lois Smith, who was a legendary publicist, was form one of the people who founded PMK. She was my publicist, and she was amazing because she was also Marilyn Monroe's publicist, and she knew everyone in show business, and she was a legend and a wonderful blessing that she was in my life. And she um, had me interview somebody from Patrick Pachenko, I think his name is, from Cosmopolitan magazine, and he asked me if I was dating anyone. And I said, no. And he said, well, wh who would you want to date? And I said, anyone who applies. And <laughs> he said, could that person be a woman? I said, you never know. Could be. Well, Lois called Helen Gurley Brown and had that part taken out hmm. of the interview. It was a time when there was no internet. The rumors weren't flying around everywhere. You could just remove it. She would made a call and removed it. You know, so um, I didn't use that part of my life, but I used my childhood because I was a young kid doing it, starting out. Right. I was 20. I was in my teens and in, in the early 20s. And and I talked about my uh, Irish being Irish and what that meant. And, and my dad with a brogue. And, you know, I, I did my life as much as I could, but I didn't you know, I didn't put in any of the personal stuff about sexuality and um i i don't think i would have even been uh, been able to imagine how to incorporate that at the time you know did you lie or was it just omission it was omission but it was also a very public non-secret like i would take kelly who was my wife and to 
the Emmys every year. We'd sit next to her. (laughs) I mean, like I didn't show up with a boy, you know, uh, people would say, well, you, you like, you pretended that you love Tom Cruise. I go, no, I, I do love Tom Cruise. I, I fully love him. The 14 year old girl in me who put Bobby Sherman's picture on the wall, loves him in the same way that I loved Bobby Sherman. And he's turned out to be personally, in my experience, the most unbelievably consistent, kind man to me. He sends me flowers on my birthday. He sends me things when my children are born. He, he's been stalwart and steady and uh, really, really like a dream almost to me where he could have run the other way going stalker, stalker, you know, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So, uh, I don't know that I, I don't think that I was hiding, but I didn't have a way to approach the gay thing because of the time period that it, that it was in. Like when my show started, there was no will and grace. Right. Right. They, they said to me after the first season, Oh, there's a new show coming on NBC. It's a gay guy. And, and a girl, and they're going to be roommates. And I'm like, well, that'll never last. I'm not going to have a show with a gay person on it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that was like what everyone thought. Right. If people knew somebody was gay, they didn't watch. Remember Love, Sydney? Do you remember that? No. Uh, Tony, it was a Tony Randall series that ran for like three weeks. And Oh, okay. They never said that he was gay, but he had a picture of a man over the fireplace. And he would sort of look at it at the end of the episode. And I remember the Catholic Church went batshit crazy. And it was pulled off the air. Wow. It just wasn't in my reality to think that it was accomplishable. Now, then the lawsuit came out with the ACLU where gay foster parents like me, I was a gay foster parent, were unable to adopt even the children they raised because that was the law in Florida. And the ACLU had a lawsuit with uh, Lofton Cruteau is the two men's names who the lawsuit was named after. They were pediatric AIDS nurses and and AIDS carers. So anyway, I I came out through that. And that was like in in, um, January, right after 9-11. And it kind of was not even a story because we were all in shock as a nation, you know. Right. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Star Search, 1984, you're making $2,700 a week. Do you consider that chance meeting with Claudia McMahon, w- w- what kind of impact do you feel like that had on your career? Did that, did that change your life? Totally. A hundred percent. It was a very big show. I, I venture to say that it was as popular in 1984 as American Idol was at its height. Right. Sam Harris had been on the year before and America fell in love with him and his Judy Garland impression singing. And uh, this was year two. And so it was a very big deal. And I went from being uh, maybe an MC or an opener to a headliner after that. Now, they weren't like big venues like Caesars, you know, which I eventually worked my way up to. But right. they were little clubs, but that you could make a living, you know. So I think if it hadn't been for Claudia McMahon, I would have toiled away in New York at the comedy clubs, you know, forever. And uh, hopefully, you know, got a, a career or a sitcom or hopefully you know get to play Rhoda Morgenstern you know Um, yeah yeah. so I was I was very happy with that chance meeting and and stayed you know in touch with him throughout his life and he was very proud of of the Irish me that got up there to the finals oh that's awesome yeah at this point do you consider yourself and I talk to a lot of people about this I get I get introduced or, or identified as this often. Do you, at that point at least, did you consider yourself a comedian or an actor? Well, um, I think I think I would say actor. Okay. Because I was acting like a comedian, right? Right. That's what I was. I was studying comedy and then performing that. it and trying to figure out how to mold that clay myself every night on stage. And and, you know, I got pretty good at it. I mean, I got uh, 
I got nominated for a couple of Emmys for my specials. And, um, you know, I, I headlined Caesar's Palace. I mean, that's a pretty big gig, you know? It's a huge gig. Yeah. Yes. And, and I filled in for George Burns on his 100th birthday at Caesar's Palace. He was supposed to be performing, but he couldn't. And he asked me to perform in his stead. Wow. And I did. And he called me in the dressing room and said, uh, Rosie, uh, did, you, did you hear the one about the doorman at the, uh, at the sperm bank? His job was to say, thank you for coming. <laughs> he told me jokes. A hundred years old, near his on his deathbed. A hundred years old. He died like a week or two later, you know? Oh. Unbelievable. When I think about the people I've met. Right. When I think about what my life has been since that little girl on Long Island, I'm kind of in awe of what's happened to me. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, but it almost, I have that dissociation still where it almost feels like it's kind of not me. Not like I'll, I'll see myself in a, in a, at the, at the height of my fame in, on the cover of a magazine. And I'd walk by in New York in those little magazine huts they yeah. have. And, and I'd go, oh, look, Rosie O'Donnell's on Newsweek. But I wouldn't think, oh, look, there's me. There's right? me. Right. There's me. Right. You do Star Search. You get some television shows. Give me a break to mm -hmm. mention one. You're headlining comedy clubs, then bigger and bigger. And then suddenly you're getting, I assume, although I shouldn't assume, makes an mm -hmm. asset of you and me, that you start getting talked to about being in the, in the, in the pictures. In the pictures. The, the yes. movies. A league of their own, obviously, well, I mean, it's like all-time classic status. I agree. Unbelievable. D did you get approached to do that? Yes. You got approached. I, you got asked my, to do that. I was, I was a VJ. I became a VJ on Video Hits 1, VH1. Yeah. And um, I would make little two-minute bits four times an hour live on TV. Okay. So I had to say... Coming up next is Whitney Houston from VH1 Hits One, a special edition of a new album that, and, and the, you know, and that, okay, that's 30 seconds. Now you have a minute and a half left. Then I'd start telling stories. Oh, you know, what happened today on the way to, and you'd see the cameramen laugh and the camera would literally go like this because <laughs> it was just me and two guys right. sitting there making it up for hours, <laughs> right? And um, my agent called and said, can you play baseball? And I said, yes. And she was also Julia Roberts' agent. And I said, if there's one thing I can do better than Julia Roberts, it's this, <laughs> you know? And so um, you had to play baseball first before you could audition. Okay. And I played baseball very well. And, um, you know, Penny knew who I was and was very, very sisterly and took me under her wing. And there was times when she was calling out direction to us right so she's got a bullhorn she's got that accent she mm -hmm. usually had something in her mouth like a piece of bacon or a cigarette a cigarette and for she'd sure. be, right cigarette and she'd be going okay i want one of you girls to run over by the field there do like bend over again get the foul ball come up with a hot dog in your mouth Who wants to do it nobody understood what she meant everyone looked at me and <laughs> I go, I'll do it. She goes, why always Rosie? It's always Rosie. Okay, go do it, Rosie. <laughs> so that part ended up being much bigger than it was written okay. because of her generosity and her encouraging improvisation and 
you know, so so that was a, a huge, huge role to get. And then, you know, three days in, Penny goes, calls me in the office and goes, tomorrow Madonna's going to come in. If she likes you and likes me, she's going to do the movie. Try to be funny. I was like, no pressure. No <laughs> pressure at all. My first movie, Best Friends with the Most Famous Woman in the World. What's the chances of that happening? Right? How was that for you? I mean, so you're a Trippy. Madonna fan. I was a Madonna fan, totally. Yeah, and um, everyone was. Everyone was, of course. She was magnificent. She was and still is, you know, one of those one-named, once-a-generation Bowie and and Elvis and Madonna. Like, yeah. there's no denying the, her legacy. Yeah. Beyonce, exactly. Beyonce and Eminem, if I do say so myself. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it changed my whole life, my whole career. It changed every single thing was being cast as Madonna's best friend. And, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, we had very similar childhoods with uh, our mothers dying when we were young and big Catholic families. And, you know, we we really uh, got along right away. And, and the weirdest thing was I had just seen her movie, Truth or Dare, the day before Penny said to me, you're going to meet her tomorrow. And when I met her, I said, you know, my mother died when I was young too. And I was named after her as well. And when I went to her graveside, and laid on that grave with my own name on the tombstone. I never thought I'd meet someone else who did that. And she was like, that was it for us. Then we became like, you know, blood sisters. You know, it's hard to maintain uh, friendships in this business sometimes when people live all over the world sure. and they're super duper mega stars like Madonna, you know, but we have maintained a consistent uh, lifelong friendship for the last 30 years. And I can't imagine what my career would have done or become or if it hadn't been her in that movie if it had been any other actress mm. but she was literally the most famous woman in the world at the time yeah and a, a totally and also tom hanks and tom hanks. and also gina davis yes I, I mean this and penny marshall by the way and john lovitz john lovitz <laughs> that's Love right that guy. Yes. That's right. I, I I love that that friendship is real. I I don't know. Yes. I don't know if that's the that's the boy in me, the younger man in me, mm -hmm. but loving that that is the case. I think we, you know, everyone who watches that movie wants wants that to be the case. You came back skipping ahead and and did a cameo on uh, the A League of Their Own series. Yes, I did. Last year. Was that fun for you? I mean, this series deals with an issue you discussed earlier. There was a time when things weren't talked about. As great as that movie was, sexuality and race were not prominently featured, unlike the series. Uh, how did it feel for you to go back, one, into that world, and two, to be right. dealing with some of those uh, issues a little Topics. bit deeper? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, Abby Jacobson is such a talent and um, Natasha Leon is a close friend and, and she introduces me to all these young, amazing women who are, you know, in their 30s and producing and directing and writing just like Natasha is and acting. And uh, it's been so great, you know, because it, it keeps me like inspired and, you know, like I <laughs> see them doing so well. I'm like, oh, my God, that's Aubrey Plaza. I know her through Natasha, you know, so uh, I met with her and with uh, we had dinner and 
me, Abby, and Natasha. And, and Abby was telling me that she had met with Penny and she had the rights and she was thinking of doing this. And I said, oh, my God, if you could, it would be fantastic. You know, what a wonderful way that the new generation of, of young women athletes wanted to be represented. Like, the, you know, she wanted to put in all the realities that we face in our world today about all this, you know, anti-gay rhetoric, all of these bills that are being passed against trans people. And, you know, what's currently political is very relevant. And it was then, too. Mm -hmm. It's just we've only now caught up to, you know, almost telling the truth. We don't want to teach critical race theory. You know, God forbid we should actually teach what we have done as a nation and learned from and no longer are as horrible as we were, dot com, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I was so moved that she asked me to do it. I said, of course. I uh, went down to Pittsburgh and walked in and they were all in our uniforms. Like, it was so weird. I'm like, this, like, I'm looking around for Biddy Schram and Renee Coleman, all the <laughs> women I did it with. Like, I'm going, how did this happen, you know? And I love the way they cast it as like homages to people like, you know, the girl who's chubby and, and beautiful, uh, you know, and funny and wisecracking. They have a Madonna archetype. They have a Biddy archetype. Like, I, I loved how they did that. And, and they did it beautifully. And I was so proud of what that show stood for. The nuances, the inclusion, the historical perspective, the sociological relevance. It, it just really, uh, I thought it was an excellent piece of art. And I'm very disappointed that Amazon only gave them four episodes. <laughs> they got to pick up for four episodes. And, you know, people love that series. I can tell you right now, it's going to be a fan uproar because four is not enough mm. for that show. The girls were wonderful, the young women. And um, I thought it was an important role to play of this, you know, lesbian woman who based on a real character, real woman who had lived and, and uh, presented as a man, mostly, you know, in a time when that would get you beat up by the cops. And uh, I thought it was a very tastefully done gay bashing that um, happens every day. And that's been happening in our country, you know, for too many years. And uh, it was very trauma, trauma. Uh, like I had a trauma response because even mm. though your brain tells you these are cops, these are not cops, these are actors and you just had lunch with them. That one has a kid. And that when someone's calling you names and hitting you with a baton, now it's, of course, a prop one. Your body, I think, doesn't realize, oh, my God, this is fake. You know, when right. you're being thrown against a like or I'm not a good enough actor to to separate it. But uh, it, it was very traumatic to film, very emotional to film. But I was very proud of it. And I'm so happy that they asked me. Yeah. Was it weird? I mean, you talked about seeing them in your in your your uniforms yeah, in our uniforms right. i mean this is what this is 20 25 year 30 yes. you know later yes uh i mean what a gift to be able to go back and, yes and experience that again and to see also the excitement of this very young very gifted group of actors and actresses mm. going back you know we talked about madonna there's tom hanks there's gina davis uh, Penny Marshall, for her to be the director of 
of of your first film as well. I mean, a legend as an actor originally and now as a director, do you feel like she helped you? Tremendously. Moving? Yeah. Tremendously. Tremendously. I can't even articulate it. She was my first director and and she um featured me prominently in the movie that she didn't have to do that. She took me on every talk show she went on because she would usually get nervous and she wanted someone to kibitz with her and we kibitzed very good together. And then we started doing those Kmart commercials, you know, which yes. we made a, a lot of oh, money on. I forgot the Kmart yes. commercials, of course. Me and Penny. And sometimes, you know, she would get there and she was in no shape to be uh, awake. And um, she'd had a few too many the night before. And so <laughs> David Steinberg, who directed them, and I would rewrite the script and have Penny dressed as an elf asleep on the toy shelf. <laughs> and then I would just talk about what Kmart wanted us to say. Yes. But, uh, you know, she she indulged a little bit, Penny Marshall. And, yes. um, you know, she got sick at the end. It was very sad. And uh, when she lost Carrie, I think it was devastating. They were like glued at the hip, you know, for a very long time. And I think, you know, she got lonely and towards the end um, had gained a tremendous amount of weight from her cancer treatments and was in a wheelchair and, and you know, was was very um, unhappy, yeah. you know, and tragic. And I, I was in shock, even though I knew that she was wasn't well. I, I wasn't expecting to get the phone call that she had passed, you know. Yeah. I mean, she took me to Laker games. She took me to every basketball, football, yeah. any sport. She was a hoarder collector. Like she had 1,500 quilts in her house and, you know, and a thousand old typewriters. And, you know, it's, it's a crazy, it was a crazy, e extremely exotic and artistic and nutty way to live. Right. It's it's funny that you just said the Lakers because that's you know I never had the opportunity to work with her, but uh, many times in uh, in the in the bowels of of Staples Center and there was a little uh, a cigar room where I would run in into Penny and she we would just talk about the Lakers, just talk right. about basketball, yeah, yeah, it's all she cared about really, and you know she called me about. 10 years after we did League of Their Own. So, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe. And she said to me, Rosie, can you play soccer? <laughs> I said, what? Can you play soccer? Well, I don't know. I never, it wasn't my sport, truthfully, too much running. I didn't like it. I'd <laughs> right. rather sit. But, you know, yeah, I, I know how to play soccer. Why? She's like, well, there's a team in Mexico. Great story. You could be the lady. I go, I'm Rosie O'Donnell. I'm going to be the Mexican woman on the soccer <laughs> coach. What? But she was always trying to like get everybody back together and do it again. And, you know, do, do you play soccer? <laughs> uh, and we never made the soccer movie, but we had a lot of dinners. We had a lot of uh, late night conversations. She wasn't always easy to understand because she mumbled. And sometimes when, you know, she was feeling no pain, she'd mumble a lot. You know? Right. I was on a private plane with her once, her plane from the Kmart commercial flying back to L.A. And she gave me a ride and it was full of Kmart crap, like, you know, uh, a stove. Right. Like, uh, you know, an outdoor uh, camping tent. 
and it was full. I, 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 she goes, I'd like you to come on a plane, but we got so much shit. I don't know if there's going to be a seat. And surely when I got on, it was it was like Santa's workshop. She took everything. It was right before Christmas. And she's like, I got everybody what they need for Christmas from Kmart. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Those were legendary, those commercials. I I mean, I don't remember commercials, but I remember those commercials. Yes. I had totally forgotten. Um, So prior to 96, you also do Sleepless in Seattle. Now, is that a connection to knowing Mr. Hanks or is that totally separate? That was Nora Ephron and um, her son, Jake, who is a wonderful gay man that I've known since he was a baby. He loved Madonna. Okay. Like in a way that I can't even. So I went to Nora's house and I read for her movie, Sleeps in Seattle, and she went and got new pages off the printer and had me read those that they had just finished. And then I talked a little bit about what I knew about her, which I knew a lot. And um, she was kind of charmed, you know, I think. And he, she mentioned at dinner, oh, I interviewed this girl or auditioned this girl, Rosie O'Donnell. And Jacob went, mom, you have to hire her. She's about to come out in this baseball movie and she plays Madonna's best friend. And she's so great. Then you ha- And Nora Ephron gave me that job and then got me an apartment in the Apthorpe. And I lived there with her and her husband, Nick, and her kids for a, a big chunk of time in New York City. Wow. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. 
Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 96, you decide to change careers again. Yes, again. If if you're a Broadway actress, if you're a stand-up comedian, you're a movie star, now you decide to launch, begin the Rosie O'Donnell show. Talk to me a little bit about how that happened. Is this something you want? You say, this is what I want? Or did this kind of opportunity presented to you? What happened was... Kathy Lee Gifford was always saying at this time, and it was a very popular morning show, Aaron Regis, that she was leaving. She was, you know, she didn't like the paparazzi and they did said things about her husband and she didn't like any of it and she was quitting. So I had Parker, my first child, in June of 95. And I did Harriet the Spy six months later. I did not have a nanny because I never knew anyone who had a nanny. So I had the baby with me for the first six months, and I bring my cleaning lady with me to the movie set in Toronto so she can watch him while I go do this movie. And I came back from work one day, late, you know, late hours, hard, hard movie schedules, and he wouldn't come to me. She was holding him, and I put out my arms, and he wouldn't come to me. And I called my agent and said, I want a job that I could stay home in New York, that he can be raised with his cousins, that I can have a life. And I I don't want to go away from my family and life for months at a time and live in a hotel. I I did it. I I don't think I can ask for more than the number one movie three summers in a row I was in. I don't know who wants more, but they're greedy if they do, you know, (laughs) shame on them because (laughs) that was pretty astounding. And um, and then. They said, well, Kathy Lee Gifford is leaving. We're going to put your name in. I said, fantastic. Well, Kathy Lee decided to stay. But they had got such a good reaction when they went and focus grouped it that they said, let's do your own show. And I said, well, okay, um, I'm going to do it like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. And they go, well, you know, is it going to be? I said, no, it's going to be exactly Merv. Nobody gets hurt celebrities come out we have fun we laugh we might sing an irish song we play games and and nobody gets hurt and at the time geraldo was being beat up and jenny jones had a death with one of the guests because he was murdered by the other guests and you know people were being bloodied it was like a horrible time for daytime yes and so when i came on it was like a breath of fresh air and and then you know they call me the queen of nice which I knew it was going to bite me in the ass and, and definitely did because nobody really is the queen of nice. If you had seen my stand up, you never would have called me that because right. I went went after Woody Allen. I went after societal ills. I, you know, 
I used uh, my voice loudly and and wielded it, you know, powerfully in in certain parts of my life and career and felt like you have to. That is what's asked of you. If you have access to a microphone, you better use it for a cause other than just yourself, right? So anyway, um, I said I want the Oprah deal. And at the time, nobody was paid to do a pilot, right? But they paid me $5 million up front because I was coming off all these movies and I had, you know, made a lot of money. And then I had ownership and back end like Oprah. And I thought, well, this baby that I'm doing this for will be going into kindergarten in four years. So I'll make a four-year deal and then I'll leave when he gets to kindergarten. Now, my mother had died at 39, so I always knew I wanted to retire by 40. Okay. That was totally in my brain. And I worked very hard up until I was 40 in order to get that. And one of the things was the talk show. Now, it was a huge hit instantly. It, you know, threw me into a level of fame that I don't think anyone is ever ready for. Um, People kind of think they want it and they crave it, but how you maintain your equilibrium you know, in the middle of a tsunami, all you try to do is get some air, right? right. Trying to, you can't get to a stable place. You just got to stick your head above the water and breathe, you know? And it caused a lot of anxiety for me, a lot of depression, a lot of panic, a lot of feeling responsible for the things that go wrong, like, you know, April 20th, 1999, Columbine. And I, um, could not believe that in our country, children were killing other children in schools while the cops stood outside. Like, I couldn't, as a mother, I uh, felt a duty to speak up. I had two small children, and I thought, this has to stop. I'm, I'm going to go speak out against the NRA. You know, and uh, I did. I, I also had a breakdown at that time. That's what I think we technically would call that where I couldn't sleep and I would wake up and think that my children were in the hallway and there was a gunman in the house. And it was the first time I was put on medication. And I thank God every day that I was because uh, I'm still here in one piece and having a great, happy life at 61. So, you know, thank God everybody finds the way that that works for them. But, you know, my clinical depression and PTSD and, you know, trauma tattoo uh, is is pretty hard to to deal with sometimes, but I'm on it. You know, I have right. a great therapist. I have a great psychopharmacologist. I'm totally in charge of keeping myself balanced and happy. That's great, and I've been able to do it. Yeah, been able to do it. But uh, so I took the show. I don't know how I got here from the show, but I took the show, and yeah. it, it, it and it became a huge hit really really quickly. And then when when it was a huge hit, I signed on for two more years. So that would make it six years. So he would be like in going into second grade. So I thought that's still young enough. But um, that's what I did. And so uh, when I left, he was seven. When I was done with the show, he was seven. You talked about the label of Queen Queen of Nice Mm -hmm. is what your label was. Yet you started your comedy career and through a lot of your stand. I mean, you started your comedy career making fun of your teachers. Let's be clear. That's yeah, the story that's the that truth. I heard. <laughs> yes. And then making fun of your classmates uh, at your first stand up uh, right. because you don't have any material. Like was that label for you difficult? 
I just knew right away, uh, that's not really the right word, you know, but comparatively at the time to what was on daytime TV, who's your daddy, you know, Maury Povich, like it was crazy. It was insane. People were having fist fights. It was crazy. And I wanted a safe place that my kids and I could watch like my Nana and I watched Dinah and Merv and Mike. I wanted a multi-generational show like that. And, you know, for that show, I was the queen of nice at that time. Right. But whenever that's your moniker, you know, people are very happy to try to pull you off of it, you know. Do you like that form of entertainment? Like I used to. Okay. I used to. I used to love it. In fact, when they offered me my own show, I knew exactly how to do it because I loved and studied them so much all during the 70s and 80s. So by the time they asked me to do it, I was an expert at it. I had done my 100,000 hours, right? Um, But I found during my own show, this was happening. You know, you would only get someone when they were doing press for a certain movie. They had specific stories because they're not comedians. Right. And you had to prompt them with the story that someone produced talking to them and then told you about. And you have to act surprised Mm. at it. You know, it's hard to be authentic when those are the rules. And the more and more we became a celebrity-obsessed culture, the more social media platforms were added to our reality, the harder it got to find authentic ways to talk to people as entertainment, you know? I think what David Letterman has done is amazing. That, you know, he conquered that field and and then some, right? He uh, created a whole new generation of kind of deadbeat quirky, weird comedy. And he's now doing these beautiful produced sit down interviews. Yeah. Yeah. With people that he wants to talk to. And it's completely compelling because his intent is pure. You know, he's not trying to make a lot of money and I hope he made a big deal. I'm sure he did. He's David Letterman, but he's not (laughs) sitting there going, you know, I'm going to do this for the money. Right. Right. He's going to do it as a creative outlet to keep your brain agile and and your artistic nature exercised. So I loved the art form back then. I I would love to see what it can become. Now, Zach Galifianakis, Between Two Ferns, come on, that's a pretty good take on a talk show, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. There's there's ways to do it. And, um, you know, I'm just not so sure that the show would be able to be as popular today because we're such a dis- divisive nation where we're really cut in half. I mean, you watch TV and, and France and, and Israel and everyone is on the verge of authoritarianism, pouncing and grabbing their, their country. And we're not the only ones, you know, we're not the only ones, but we're all in crisis and it's been for a while. And, you know, it's really hard to, uh, stay balanced. And, and, you know, we had Rory Kennedy on yesterday and, and uh, it's just uh, today, I guess it's on, I'm sorry, I don't know. We dropped it. I don't know what that means. But anyway, uh, she was saying that, you know, scientists are saying that there's maybe 10 more years and then there is complete breakdown and failure of the world. 
because of climate change. <laughs> like these are pretty meta concepts, right? But we have to get together. I don't know if a show like mine, if if I would be allowed to be as loud as I want to be on TikTok and and whatever, state my views, you know. And it would, you know, it it it, it doesn't seem that it would fit in today's culture. But I don't know, you know. I think when you watch it, there's an innocence, there's a nostalgia. Yes. There's a feeling of new babies being born and life blossoming and you know it's it's really wonderful i watch it back and i get choked up sometimes and i go wow look at that you know my kid will find it on we'll find a clip on something and blakey you know send it to me he's like mom you never told me you met him like <laughs> I'm, I met everybody I blakey. Met everybody. everybody there was to meet i met him <laughs> um it's awesome i, I mean it's it's so crazy when you think back, you have all of this juice coming off, as you say, the number one movie for three years in a row. Three decide, summers in a row, yeah. Th- th- yeah, three summers yeah. in a row. Right. And you create a show that you want to do that's different than what's happening there. It becomes a huge success. And you're still feeling... The anxiety, in part, I'm sure, because of all of the attention being focused on you at this time. I mean, you truly are one of the biggest stars in the country that everybody is looking to and, you know, diving yeah. into and, and all of that. What do you see now as the show's legacy after it's it's now done? I would say it was a time of... Uh... The legacy of the show, I think, is love, because I think the reason that I was successful is because I really loved Florence Henderson. And when I had her on the show, it was trippy to think that I would dream that she would be my mom and that here she is sitting next to me and being motherly. Florence Henderson would come over to my house and play with Parker and these older women who knew that I was a motherless child, motherless child, you know, and stepped in and in, in a in a magical way, almost, you know, there was something magical about the show. It was pure and it was um, it was kind and it was it was fun. I think we had fun, you know, and yeah. um, everybody wanted to be in the audience. It was a tiny little studio with um like 200 seats and everybody wanted to be there. And, and then when, when I did tickle me Elmo, I remember getting a call from Aaron spelling, Aaron spelling, like one of the richest men in the world calls me to ask me if I had four tickle me Elmos for his grandchildren. (laughs) I was like, okay, sir. Well, listen, thank you for dynasty. I enjoyed that so much when I was a child. Let me get back to you. And then I go to my assistant, find four fucking Elmos for Aaron Spelling. Like, and then I think, whose life is this? This right. is a crazy life, you know? Right. It's a crazy life. And and I never really believed at the height of like when, oh, you're the most influential. You're on this list. You're on that list. You know, I usually didn't go to the party. You know, I like, I didn't always believe it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I feel, I feel like I have a healthy amount of uh, of reality in my show business i don't know is that weird to say no i think i get it but but you must be aware or you should be aware of the countless doors that you opened 
in your career mm-hmm. for other people in the LGBTQ community. You opened up a lot of doors during this time and after for people that came after you. Do you uh, are you proud of that? You do you acknowledge yes. that to yourself? Yes, yes, I definitely do, and I you know I feel that. Um, some people are marathon runners and some people are sprinters. And I knew that I'm hardly a jogger, right? <laughs> I, I work very, very hard, but I'm tired, you know, like I want to lay down and watch something like I, I don't have the kind of energy that that I did back then. And it was a very large amount of work. But um, I do realize that. And, and, you know, I was at Nobu yesterday and. It's so funny because you're so not this. I'm going to totally interrupt you. That okay. that is like the most like Hollywood thing Hollywood drop. I know. I know. So I was at Nobu. I was yesterday. at Nobu yesterday. Uh, anyway, sorry. I've never seen. A, you're like the opposite of that. So I had to at least call you it. You have out. to. I've never seen a Kardashian there. I just want you to know. I go there like three or four times a week. It's almost like my come on my neighborhood restaurant. I'm right on the beach in Malibu, and right next door is Nobu. I just ate at Nobu two nights in a row in Vegas. No, if I could eat joking. it every day, two nights in a row, I would eat yes. it every day. But can okay. I read this to you? What this this note that happened at Nobu? Yes. So I I see this family sitting in front of me, and they're very young. I thought at first they were teenagers, but very kind of good looking. Like like he looked like an artist to me. Like I thought he he had on real funky clothes. I bet he's a fashion designer. I thought to myself, and what a pretty wife. And right. I I go to get the check and the guy says, oh, it's paid for. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's a note for you. And apparently this young man paid my bill and left with and never bothered me. But he left me this note. Rosie, thank you for being you and setting an example of what it means to be yourself in the face of adversity and negativity. Because of your strength and bravery, a little boy found the light in a childhood riddled with violence, drug abuse, and depression. And now, I'm one of the biggest rappers in the whole world. Thank you, with unconditional reverence, Logic, Bobby Hall. Now, I had no idea who Logic was, but I felt like this is the legacy of the show, (laughs) that there are millions of artists and they were inspired and they knew to go there and they knew what we were selling was membership in this world. And uh, I was so blown away. I go on to my son, who's 23, and my daughter, who's 20, and I send the copy of it to both of them. And they both call me screaming on the phone. <laughs> screaming. <laughs> I am going to use this for the next three years. Like Blake was like, do you want to keep it? I'm like, yes, I'm keeping it. He's like, I want to show my friends. I'm like, I'll send you a picture of it. You know, but, uh, I was so, I was so moved. Uh, that is, so, I'm, you know what? I'm so, that makes me so happy Yeah. for you. Yeah. That makes me so happy that that happened for you. Obviously for logic as well that he was able to come out of a difficult situation in part because of you but for him to tell you that right. and to buy me a incredible. very expensive dinner as well uh, a lunch with a, a friend of mine who was uh, i knew was a comedian years ago and i hadn't seen in 40 years we had a uh, lunch and talked about doing stand-up in the old days but uh, 
he he did and 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 I thought you know and I think to myself every time that somebody writes to me or stops me or tells me you know is is a gift it's a gift and my children make fun of me because of the difference between when they were little and we used to go to the mall and going to the mall now and or we go to a baseball game or a football game and and my sons would will totally rag on me like, Mom, nobody recognized you at the whole game. You know, <laughs> I'm like, well, honey, mommy's lost it. I got gray hair now and I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> nobody knew you. <laughs> well, you start going to games again, yeah. by the yeah. way, because you're you are hot. I <laughs> am. I, right I now. didn't know that you you are. You are absolutely you. Come back, you do Smilf. Yeah. Uh, you then your friend, as you said, Natasha Leon, you get cast in season two of Russian Doll, mm-hmm. and now onward with Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. Uh, for those who haven't heard it yet, this is Rosie's brand new podcast where she gets to have real conversations with <laughs> incredible people. Right. Uh, what What has it been like for you? Uh, diving into the podcast world, you know, I, I'm I'm just learning how to do it, though, Brian. I I thought it would be more like the radio show, and it's very different than a radio show. Yeah, you know, I had a thing on Sirius for a while, and yes, yeah, it was four friends of mine, and we all just kind of did like what Howard does in the morning. You know, we talk to a celebrity and or whoever we could get, and we just that was the one to mimic. If you're going to mimic a successful. <laughs> radio pro person it's going to be Howard Stern right so yes but I did think I did think I'm gonna do something creative that I can stay home because I have a daughter who has autism who is uh, uh, 10 years old and I want to be I have to be more accessible to her especially now that she's getting to be a preteen and you know that they've what I've heard from doctors and experts and people I use to help guide her is the teen years are quite difficult usually because, you know, hormones are going everywhere and emotions are sometimes confusing for autistic kids. And so I wanted to do something I could do like this right from my home. I hear her playing her iPad in the background, right? So it's it works for me and it's artistically fulfilling because I get to talk to people like you who are interesting and have conversations that matter and mean things without you know, a time frame of you have to get off at this many minutes. I mean, that's what I always talked about, not being on such a strict schedule. You know, the idea of, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I did the Today Show, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I all I hear is you have 35 seconds. You Correct. have 15 Correct. seconds. Giggle, 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 one joke, and we're done, you know? being able to really talk to people. Are you, are you having a good time with very it? good time? But I really am just learning. Like I have to admit that I never really listened to any besides I've seen Joe Rogan a lot. Cause I knew him as a comic and I, mm. you know, like his podcast. I think it's very interesting. I listen every day during the Trump administration to pod save America. And those guys saved mm-hmm. me and they helped me navigate my emotions through the trauma. And, um, and I, aside from that, I haven't really known the art form for very long. And in hindsight, right. I think it was kind of um, lazy of me. I should have, like, I should have consumed it more before I started trying to do it. But, you know, Lori and I, 
who's been a producer with me since my TV show. She did all the music on my TV show. She, we put it together and, and we, we got something that has a strong voice. And now the other parts we're going to fix, you know, like where to put the commercials right. and how many commercials <laughs> and should it be longer? Where should it be? Right. You know, those things that I have no knowledge about, you know? Yeah. Well, I look, you have absolutely crushed everything that you have, uh, that you have, that you've done so far. And you're such a delight to talk to. I have long admired you and your career and all that you have accomplished and done for people. I, um, yeah, I, I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you Rosie, so much. And real. the same thing for you. I, you've made me laugh so many times. My kid, uh, does all the impressions and knows all the lines. And it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful legacy to have been so funny for so long on such a great show. You know, those people well, like Mary Tyler Moore for me, Valerie Harper, you know, Vivian Vance, yeah. they're factors in my childhood. And, and you are that for so many. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I can't wait for us to do it again. This is part one. That's part one. I'll be back for part this two. This is part one. All right. Okay. Thank you, thank Brian. You. Thank you so much. Rosie. Thank you so much for joining me. That was a pleasure. I cannot wait to check out your new podcast, Onward, with Rosie O'Donnell. And truly, I cannot wait for part two. Listeners, I'll see you next week for another episode with another fantastic guest who's thankfully not dead yet. Boy, you know, I love doing this podcast. I really, really do. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you next week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find yours in online or in a store near you at zen.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.